This sermon is the second in a three-part series leading up to election 2012. Last week I spoke about Governor Romney. This week the focus will be President Obama. And in two weeks I'll be speaking about the fifth principle of Unitarian Universalism, the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. But before proceeding fully into this second election sermon, it may be helpful to remind ourselves of what is and isn't legal or advisable at the intersection of religion and public life. Sometimes progressives can allow our horror at the thought of conservative groups setting up a theocracy in our country to block us from seeing the ways that religion can and has served as a powerful force of social change. Even as religion continues to be uh, tapped in an attempt to deny same-sex couples the right to marry, to block reproductive justice for women, or legitimize intolerance, religion has been and continues to be harnessed in the transformative work of social justice. Religion was at the root of the work of Martin Luther King Jr., of Dorothy Day, of Mohandas Gandhi, and of so many others. And Unitarian Universalism has long been at the front lines of progressive social reform. And the Unitarian Universal Association, to this end, offers some guidelines for congregationally-based activism to help keep us out of trouble with the IRS. Uh, (laughs) There is no limit on the amount of time, effort, or expense congregations may devote to working on general issues civil rights, civil liberties, economic justice, the environment, or peace. Some of the many acceptable activities include advocating positions in the media, uh, advocating positions to elected officials, educating and mobilizing congregants in the general public, working in local coalitions, or partnering uh, on issues of social justice. Now, a congregation's 501c3 status does forbid it from spending, quote, a substantial part of its activities attempting to influence legislation, commonly known as lobbying. Now that word substantial has to date only been vaguely defined, but it's clear that lobbying activity constituting 5% or less of total activities is acceptable. That may range up to 20%, but we're not planning on testing that here. Uh, A second limitation is that congregations and their representatives can do nothing that advocates for or against candidates or political parties. So I would also not be endorsing a candidate from the pulpit. Now, in negotiating these lines, Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way in his book, The Strength to Love. The church must be reminded that it is neither the master nor the servant of the state. It is rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state, though, and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. And that quote is one way of describing one of my goals for this sermon on the Obama question. To take a step back near the end of President Obama's first term in office, to reflect on his presidency so far from a progressive perspective. Now, I'll say first term in office intentionally because I am willing to go on record as saying that I think President Obama will win a second term. Now, I can't see the future, 
But in my, well, it's, irrespective of whether that's a good thing, right? I'm just saying that you can think it is. Uh, I can't see the future, but my opinion is based on statistician Nate Silver's 538 blog. Any of you follow that blog? It's on the New York Times website. Uh, I recommend it. for He really helps sort out this incessant flurry of opinion polls, of saying, you know, all polls are not created equal, and he's a, he's a good guide for um, which polls to pay attention to. As of yesterday, Silver's prediction was that President Obama w- would win 288.6 electoral votes out of the 270 needed to win. Of course, his, the name of his blog, 586, comes from the total number of electoral um, votes in the U.S. Electoral College. Now, of course, anything could happen in the next two weeks or so, what they call a October surprise, But the importance of reflecting on President Obama's first term is heightened by the likelihood of a two-term Obama administration. At the same time, as will soon become clear, I have no intention of being a shill for the Obama campaign in this sermon. Indeed, I can honestly say that I've never fully drunk the Obama Kool-Aid. Although I have studied all his major speeches closely, and some of them are truly brilliant and moving, and I've followed his political calculations with interest, I have not read either of his best-selling memoirs. Part of that was on purpose. I, I mean, first of all, they're summarized constantly, but I, it just didn't seem that important. Um, all that to say, I, I am familiar with President Obama's story and find him to be both a fascinating and frustrating figure. On the eve of a potential second term as president, it can be easy to forget just how stunning his rise has been. In July 2004, when he delivered an electric keynote address at the Democratic National Convention in Boston. He was only a state senator then, representing the 13th district of the Illinois Senate. He didn't win his U.S. Senate seat until the November of that year. After his speech at the DNC, speculation began almost immediately that, you know, that guy might run for president as early as 2012. But we know that a mere four years from that U.S. Senate rate race, he was elected president of the United States. Less than 10 years after September 11, 2001, which stoked anti-Arab and Islamophobic sentiments in the U.S., we elected Barack Hussein Obama II as the 44th president of the United States. That's not to say he's a crypto-Muslim. That's just to say his middle name's Hussein, (laughs) and it's remarkable. And less than 150 years after the end of a brutal civil war in this country over slavery, that same nation, our nation, elected 12, that elected 12 slave masters to the presidency, elected its first African-American president, along with the first lady who is the direct descendant of American slaves. That sweep of events is still breathtaking. But to isolate only one aspect, it can be equally important to point out how far we have to continue to go to fully dismantle racism in this country. Even as we celebrate how much progress has been made, we should remember that with Barack Obama in the Oval Office, there are currently no, zero African Americans serving in the United States Senate. And there have only been six African American senators in all of U.S. history. As a point of comparison, census records show that in 2011, approximately 13.1% of the U.S. population is black, yet zero U.S. senators are black. That's one of many statistics to keep in mind when the argument is made that racism is over now that we've elected a biracial president. It's far from the case. Even if we elect Hillary in 2016, that will not mean sexism is over, right? Uh, 
Before I transition into a progressive critique of some of President Obama's decisions, it's relatedly important to name that he has been confronted with an unprecedented level of, of obstructionism from the opposition party. And that's not simply the perception of some pundits. It's a matter of historical record. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell put it perhaps most succinctly when he said publicly and adamantly, the single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. From the perspective of progressives on the left side of the political spectrum, this Republican obstinacy is particularly frustrating when they consider how much President Obama conceded to conservatives from the outset. For his economic advisors, President Obama chose not liberals like Joseph Stiglitz, Paul Krugman, or Robert Reich, someone with a track record of really giving up economic priority to the poor and the unemployed. Instead, he chose two people with close ties to Wall Street, Timothy Geithner for Timothy, the Treasury Secretary and Larry Summers as director of the White House's National Economic Council. Similarly, for foreign policy advisors, he stayed the course with Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, who in 2006 was George W. Bush's choice to replace Donald Rumsfeld. He chose um, James L. Jones as his national security advisor, who in addition to being a former NATO commander, is also a close friend of Obama's 2008 rival, John McCain. Uh, Jones actually said publicly that he was shocked that Obama had asked him. Uh, President Obama also no nominated John Huntsman, who came to be his 2012 rival. He nominated Huntsman uh, as the, the former Republican governor of Utah as the U.S. ambassador to China. As progressive theologian Gary Dorian has said, this was not change you can believe in. This was don't worry about Obama's inexperience because old hands will be on deck. Given a different political climate in this country, these and many other conciliatory gestures from a sitting Democratic president might have been seen as a good faith effort to fulfill all that soaring rhetoric, like his 2004 DNC keynote, that we aren't truly divided into red states and blue states, but are instead one diverse United States of America. But President Obama's efforts at bipartisanship have tragically been met with an almost complete refusal to cooperate on the right and resulting sense of betrayal on the left. For what it's worth, I personally think that President Obama is correct that we aren't as divided a country as we sometimes seem. That we do indeed coach Little League in the blue states, and yes, we've got some gay friends in the red states. There are patriots who oppose the war in Iraq, and there are patriots who supported the war in Iraq. Now, I'll say more about a potential way out of this impasse next week, but we also need to be honest that too often in the past four years, the politics of hope has been drowned by the politics of cynicism. Now, from a pr progressive perspective, one of President Obama's worst decisions, arguably, was doubling down on the war in Afghanistan. A few weeks ago, we passed the 11th anniversary of the U.S. invading Afghanistan. Far from being a necessary war in contrast to George W. Bush's unnecessary invasion of Iraq, the situation on the ground in Afghanistan has for many years begun to seem to many progressives as a consummate example of what economists call the sunk cost fallacy. We seem unable to pull out because so much blood and treasure has already been spent. But that's precisely the sunk cost fallacy that a surge of further blood and treasure doesn't always redeem the day. 
it sometimes just tragically spends more blood and more treasure. As many of you know, there's a history of failed invasions of Afghanistan. There's deep corruption in the Afghan government and incredibly disheartening headlines recently of increasing numbers of U.S. soldiers being shot by supposed Afghan allies. Now, relatedly, about a week ago, the public editor of the New York Times wrote an important article about the rising use of drone strikes in Afghanistan. She noted that the Bureau of Investigative Journalism in Britain has estimated that in the first years after, first three years after President Obama took office, somewhere between 282 and 535 civilians were credibly reported killed by drone strikes, including more than 60 children. But so far, the U.S. government has blocked the freedom of information request that the Times and the American Civil Liberties Union have filed about the drone program. She also admits that the Times has not been without fault. Since a groundbreaking New York Times article in May that many of you may have seen about President Obama's role overseeing a secret terrorist kill list, the Times reporting has not aggressively challenged the administration's description of those described as militants, which itself is an undefined term. As I've sought to reflect on President Obama's first term from a progressive perspective, perhaps the most important point that has stood out to me is that outside of some occasionally soaring rhetoric about hope and change, neither President Obama nor candidate Obama has ever been particularly progressive, leftist, or radical, despite accusations to the contrary. Although Obama famously said regarding George W. Bush's decision to invade Iraq that I don't oppose all wars, I oppose dumb wars, at that time, he was merely a state senator from Illinois speaking in October 2002, almost two years before he would deliver that fateful keynote address at the DNC. Many of you likely remember the absurd arrest of Harvard professor Henry Louis Gates in 2009 when he broke into his own home in Cambridge, Massachusetts when his door was jammed. President Obama helped broker the peace by inviting both Gates and the arresting officer to have a beer with him at the White House. Gates had previously said about the president, Obama's only radical belief is that he can be elected president. He was right. <laughs> so, uh, we sometimes forget, for example, that Obama didn't promise to get us out of Afghanistan. He promised to escalate the war, and he did. I'm deeply grateful for all those who serve in our armed forces, but I also agree with Martin Luther King Jr. about the unintended consequences that often flow from the decision to use violence. King wrote that the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is often a descending spiral, diminishing the very thing it seeks to destroy, even multiplying it. Through violence you may murder the hater, but rarely do you murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. As theologian Gary Dorian has said, when voting for Barack Obama, too many progressives and others imagined they were electing a resurrected Martin Luther King Jr. That set them up for a mighty disillusionment. But we didn't elect the radical social prophet Martin Luther King Jr. to be president. We elected the pragmatic Barack Hussein Obama, that skinny kid with a funny name. On one hand, I'm resistant to the idea that there is no difference between electing a Democratic president and a Republican president. 
If President Obama had not been elected, I can't imagine we would still have made the same significant strides towards universal health care, that we would have stopped Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military, that we would have made important gestures towards internationalism, which seems important to recognize on UN Sunday, such as Obama's speech in the Muslim world um, in Cairo. On the other hand, on this Sunday that we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the UU United Nations office, I'm reminded of just how far short the Obama presidency has fallen from the Unitarian Universalism's sixth principle, the goal of a world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. I'm reminded of the irony that President Obama was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize while serving as commander-in-chief of two wars. Uh, apparently he, that was, he was nominated for that. The deadline was 12 days after his election. So apparently the Norwegians also forgot that we didn't elect MLK president. For a different worldview, I'm reminded of the recent memorial service we had for Bob McAllister, who de dedicated his life to organizations like the Peace Corps in an effort to make this world a better place for all humans. During the benediction to Bob's memorial service, I quoted philosopher James Hinton that the only way to abolish war is to make peace heroic. Again, I'm deeply grateful to the many veterans of the U.S. Armed Forces who have sacrificed so much over the years for our freedom. At the same time, we need to be reminded of how much honor there is in nonviolent activism. Again, from a pro progressive perspective, there is much to criticize about President Obama's first term. But then I remember that when candidate Obama took to the stage in Denver on that last night of the 2008 Democratic National Convention, that was the 45th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s March on Washington. Barack Obama may fall short of MLK's social activism, but President Obama is nonetheless a powerful fulfillment, if only partially, of MLK's dream. The only more emotional moment of that campaign that I can think of is when President-elect Obama took the stage in Grant Park on November 4th, 2008. He said, tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals. Democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. That's the true genius of America, that America can change. Our union can be perfected. What we've already achieved gives us hope for what we can and must achieve tomorrow. When I hear Obama's rhetoric, my first response is often, may it be so. But our challenge is to never abdicate our responsibility for social justice to elected officials. The fifth UU principle is not merely about the use of our democratic process within congregations at large and our society. It's also about the right of conscience. We must allow our conscience to guide us no matter who is in office. How we vote matters, and we need to vote on the side of love, in my opinion. But we only vote at most around once a year. And Gandhi's slogan to be the change you want to see in the world can seem cliche sometimes. But the last four years have made it clear that simply casting a vote is not enough to create the change that we can believe in. Even as we must continue to petition our elected officials to create social change, we have the choice each day to choose wisdom. We have the choice each day to choose to be merciful and kind in how we treat each other. 
We have the choice each day to choose compassion, to choose love. May it be so, no matter what happens on Election Day.